Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In 1994, just eight years after the explosion, a photographer named David McMillan traveled to Chernobyl. He went there to take uh, photographs of all that had happened, of what had happened in the eight years since Chernobyl had exploded. Since then, um, he has made at least 21 trips back to Chernobyl. He has documented the decay of the built environment as the buildings have crumbled with the lack of upkeep because nobody lives there. He has documented the way that nature has slowly swallowed up the town of Chernobyl. You can see these photos because he published them uh, in a book called Growth and Decay. And as you look at these photos, if if you look them up, you can find them online. And there's something that is just absolutely striking about these photos of the fallout zone in Chernobyl. On the one hand, they show a tragedy as this town is abandoned and it was evacuated almost overnight. And as you look at these photos, you'll see things like classrooms that are still set up as classrooms, but nature has begun to sort of take over the building itself. You you see others that were pools that have become swamps uh, where animals gather around, almost like makeshift watering holes. And yet, as much as these pictures show us catastrophe, there's something uh, absolutely beautiful about them at the same time. I remember the first time I stumbled onto these photographs, I just couldn't get enough. I just kept clicking through because of this juxtaposition, this, this meeting of beauty and catastrophe. And if you look closely at these photos, if you look and squint in just the right way, in the midst of the catastrophe, you begin to see something that looks like hope. Hope is, is something that's hard to come by. Hope is the belief that things aren't the way that they will always be. And something that we all struggle to hold on to. It's hard to have hope when times are the darkest. And it's true for us in huge ways, and it's true for us in small and tiny ways. In the midst of national or regional tragedy, hope is hard to come by. I mean, just pick up a newspaper or, well, more accurately stated, just go to a website that used to be a newspaper And read there, sorry, I know we have newsmen among us, but here we are. But if you go and read, you see despair and darkness all around us, whether you read about global inflation or political unrest near and far or a long war in Eastern Europe that doesn't seem to have an expiration date. Hope in all of these situations seems distant seems far off, seems unattainable. And it's true in the small ways that you and I experience in our own lives as well. Whether you're dealing with the illness and death of loved ones, of wayward children, of broken and complex relationships, all of these things remind us of how hard it is to have hope as we trudge through life. It's hard to believe 
that the way things are aren't the way things will always be. We resign ourselves to the sort of hopelessness that comes with this. And we follow after the great philosopher, Bill Belichick, and just utter, it is what it is. But Advent, Advent, this season of the church that we're in right now, is meant to cut right through that. It's meant to be a bright, shining light in the midst of the darkness of our hopefulness, hopelessness. That's why the church has traditionally used candles at the time of Advent. It's a reminder of light in the dark. In fact, uh, Advent occurs in the end of December. It's always around Christmas. Christmas is always the 25th. But in the Northern Hemisphere, where Christianity first began to flourish, it's no accident that this time of Advent occurs around the time of the longest nights. In fact, the longest night of the year is four days before Christmas Day. Advent is meant to remind us, to wake us up, to remind us that light is piercing through the darkness, whether these huge and global ways or those small and personal ways that we experience hopelessness and darkness. The problem is, for you and I, is that we've made Advent cute. We've made Advent cute and plastic. Now, listen, I would get mugged outside of the church service if I begin to tell you that stockings and Advent dog treat calendars are wrong. <laughs> Not the least of reason being, in my house, you will find stockings and Advent dog treat calendars for my dog. And yet, and yet, our cute little nativities, our little plastic Fisher-Price nativities, aren't shaking us awake to the truth and beauty and light of Advent. They're not cutting it. Our imagination is too shaped by these little cute nativities. Maybe yours is bigger, maybe it's more ornate, but they don't capture the absolutely astounding, world-changing thing that was happening in that moment. Advent undoes not only the systems of judgment and righteousness that we have as humans, but Advent is the beginning of the undoing of the curse on everything that is on the earth. When we think of Christmas, when we think of Advent, what we need to, to do is we need to pray that our eyes would be open to see the greatness and light of what Jesus is doing. When we do that, we'll, we'll begin to see how dim our plastic nativities are and how much of his coming they fail to capture, how they become sort of cheesy, cartoonish snapshots of something that is big and bold and beautiful. Of all the prophecies in Isaiah, chapter 11 captures this in vivid colors. Chapter 11 pierces through our darkness with the light of hope. And so as we have been looking at the different prophecies of Isaiah, uh, I want to read the first 10 verses of Isaiah chapter 11. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me. Um, the words will be on the screen behind me, or if you have a Bible with you or a phone app, however you want to follow along. But I'm going to read out loud Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall, shall lie down with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Just before this prophecy that many of us are familiar with because of the whole lion and lamb lying down together, Isaiah has another prophecy that wasn't quite as nice, wasn't quite as pretty. In chapter 10, Isaiah prophesies against the country of Assyria and says, because you have come and taken away, because you have cut down the people of Israel, I will cut you down. And the image he uses for Assyria is that they will be cut down like a forest that is being clear cut. All of them, the great forest of Assyria will become a huge field of stumps. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Israel, because you've abandoned me, same thing is going to happen to you. The same thing is going to happen because of what King Ahab has done in aligning himself with the other nations. And so as we come into chapter 11, the imagination of the people is on this field of stumps. And it is uh, a gray and ashy picture. It is sapia tones of, of brown and orange. It is just not a pretty picture. In fact, it looks pretty apocalyptic. It looks like the beginning of a movie, like like Hunger Games or some other dystopian teen movie. It's all ugly and bleak. And oftentimes, that's what we feel like when we are struggling with hopelessness. Food doesn't taste right. Everything doesn't seem to have the sharpness of color. When we look at our disaster and grief and lament, and we think things shouldn't be like this, that's what the people of Israel would have been seeing. That's what would have been on their minds. And I imagine that's where a lot of you find yourself this morning. And that's where chapter 11 begins. A forest that has become a field of stumps. Ash and sawdust cover the countryside. And as you look at this, Isaiah points at one particular stump and says, but look at that. Look at that stump right there because something different is happening over there. In the midst of all of this devastation, there's a single sapling growing out of the stump of the family of Jesse. 
Now, if you haven't been around the church very long, or maybe you've been around and haven't quite heard the story, you might ask yourself, who is this Jesse that Isaiah is talking about? Why, why does Jesse mean anything to us? Well, Jesse was the father of King David. You likely have heard of him. And so he says, instead of this Messiah coming from the line of David, he says it came from the line of Jesse. And why was that? Well, because David's family had made a mess of Israel. It was David's great, great, I couldn't count all the number of greats, grandson Ahab that had got the people of Israel to this place. It was David's family's fault. And so the family needed a reboot. And so Isaiah says, yes, that's what we're going to see. A newer, better David is coming. That's the shoot that is coming out of the stump. And as you begin to read the characteristics of this coming king, you begin to realize very quickly that this is no incremental upgrade. This isn't a nicer, kinder version of David and his family. No, this is something divine. This is something wholly different. And you read the characteristics of what this Messiah, what this coming king is going to be like. And it says, the spirit of the Lord rests on him. And it gives him three sort of couplets, three sort of big ideas of what Jesus is going to be like. He's going to have wisdom and understanding. He's going to have counsel and might. He's going to have knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are the things that Jesus has. These are the things that Jesus is so that he might lead us, so that he might make war, so that he might provide spiritual guidance and love towards us. And these were three of the things that the kings of Israel were exactly missing. What Isaiah is saying is all of the things that are wrong with your leaders now, all of the problems that you are having, imagine the opposite. That's where we're headed. Imagine the opposite of all of the bad kings, and then you'll begin to see a picture of who the Messiah is. He addresses every area of our lives, and he's trustworthy because the Spirit of God rests upon him and leads us in any area that we face. Jesus is not just a nice baby in the straw of our manger sets. He is the divine hope giver. Whether our hopelessness that we are facing right now is spiritual or material or relational, the Spirit of God rests on Jesus so that he might lead us to hope, so that his person might be the one that we find our hope rooted in. Because our hope is not just rooted in who he is, but in his very character. That's why Isaiah describes what Jesus is going to be like. You want to know what Jesus is like? Isaiah tells you what he's going to be like. He doesn't just fear the Lord. He delights in fearing the Lord. He humbly and joyfully follows in the paths laid out to him by the Father through the Spirit. Now, just an aside, this is a wildly Trinitarian passage. It shows us God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working in unison. But more than that, it tells us about the way that Jesus is going to judge the nations. He's not going to judge by the things that he sees and hears. But because he is God, he's going to judge on based, based on what he knows, because God is an all-knowing God. And so often our justice and the equity that we see in the world around us is often driven by what we see. It's often driven by what we hear. 
You think of a trial when you watch a law TV show, or maybe you've been involved in one way or another in a case like that. The jury is presented with things that they can see and hear, and they have to make a decision based on that. But what we all know to be true is that people can lie. What we all know to be true is people can see the wrong thing. People can remember the wrong thing. People can be manipulated. I was speaking to a lawyer the other day that says that they hire psychologists to teach them how to talk to juries and what to do. You know, I'm not going to make the easy lawyer joke there, but it would be easy to make that joke. But what we see in Jesus is an entirely different form of justice, a justice that's based on the all-knowing character of God. Our hope in Jesus is that his character will be the driving force in his leadership. He won't favor rich over poor. He won't favor the powerful over the weak, the corrupt over the innocent, but rather he will judge with one measuring stick against every human. Our hope is not in some disembodied, this too shall pass. Now, the Christian hope is the absolute character of who Jesus is that's shown to us in this passage. In fact, the the last verse of the first section here where there's a break, verse five, it says that, that righteousness and faithfulness are like a belt to Jesus. Now, that's the translators of the ESV being, being a little bit Victorian, uh, being a little bit prudish, because what the idea behind this is, is that this is his undergarments. When you take off all the clothes, when you take off everything he is, what is left is righteousness and faithfulness, which is really interesting, because when you think about the cross, as Jesus was stripped before the world, what did we see vividly displayed on the cross? The righteousness and faithfulness of God. He was faithful to the covenant where God said that if we broke the covenant, he would stand in our place. And so Jesus was faithful to that as he was torn apart on the cross so that we might go free. We see his righteousness as an innocent man died on the behalf of those who were not innocent us. And so when you strip it down, when you get to the bottom of all of Jesus' character, you see that he is the righteous and faithful one. That is our hope. Jesus is that sort of light in the darkness. And I don't think that we can get that by just looking at a nice nativity scene. But he doesn't just show us the character of of Jesus. Isaiah goes on and shows us what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is doing everything to undo the natural order as we know it. We have very little picture about the way that God created the world and what that world was like at the very beginning. Just a few chapters at the beginning of Genesis and with not a lot of detail on how the world operated. We know a lot about the world as it is now, but the world that we live in now is a world wrecked by sin, where even the planet itself feels the effect. It groans against sin. What we call the natural order is actually the unnatural order because of sin. This world is not the way it was meant to be. It isn't the way the world was made to be. And this isn't the way the world will always be. Because Jesus is going to undo all of the curse. All of the ways that sin has wrecked this world And Isaiah shows us this through these vivid pictures of the natural order. He shows us things that cannot be. It is not normal that lions and lambs 
would be friends. That doesn't happen except in cartoons and Disney movies. But he says that in the world to come, in what Jesus is doing, not only will the lions and lambs lay down together, but they'll be led in and out of the pasture by a child. He says that bears and wolves are going to go vegan. They're going to eat straw like donkeys. This isn't the world that we know. This isn't the world that we understand. And that's why this passage lives rent-free in our heads. If you don't know anything about the book of Isaiah, you probably have heard, whether you're a Christian or not, the idea of a lion laying down with a lamb. You've heard that. That lives in all of our heads. Maybe you hear it because you've, you've heard Handel's Messiah, that sort of famous piece of classical music that's so popular this time of year. It borrows from that language at its crescendo. And so we hear that and we think of how amazing it is But what we need to do is see what God is really saying, seeing what Isaiah is really showing us that, because he's using that to show us the work of what Jesus is doing. He is reconciling old hostilities, not just in the natural world, but in our lives as well. Nearly every week I mention that we will worship around the throne of Jesus one day with people of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And if you've been around City Church for a while, that those words probably roll off of your back like water off of a duck. You just go, yeah, 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 that's the thing Justin says. He says it every week. But when you stop and think about the implications of that, there will be a time where people from the Ukraine and Russian soldiers who are Christians will worship together around the throne of Jesus. When the Hutus and the Tutsis of the Rwandan genocide will gather together around Jesus' throne and God will reconcile them. Things that do not seem possible, God is doing. God is unmaking the evil of this world. He is changing this world. And it all started when Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into that manger not just a baby in swaddling clothes, but more so the faithful and righteous God come to visit earth and undo sin. Sin's relentless presence is being overcome right now. Sin's relationship-breaking power is being undone. Sin's deadly and devastating effects in our lives are being overcome by what Jesus has already done. And not just in one place, not just here or there, but around the world. That's our hope. Jesus is undoing all of the wrong. I say it too often, but it is an incredible line that C.S. Lewis said, all of the sad things are coming untrue. That is what Jesus is doing. It's not some platitude. That's our hope. It's not a rhyme or a phrase. No, the good and gracious God of the universe is not going to leave creation, the creation that he loves, to wither and die. He's not going to allow his people who he loves to wither and die. He is going to make it right. He's going to fill the whole earth with knowledge of himself. It's going to be so prevalent. Isaiah says it's like the waters cover the ocean, full, complete, unrelenting. Advent is not a nice story. It's a full teardown and rebuild of the world as we know it. Our hope is based on no small thing, but a full-on apocalypse. God is doing something wild. God is doing something enormous. 
Our hope is based on his character, on who he is. And you can't contain that in a Fisher-Price nativity. And so he calls the people to bear witness to this. He calls the people to enlist, to be an army of hope. In our, our version that we read today, it says that he will be a signal to the nations. Now, that doesn't make much sense to us. How is he a signal? Uh, but if you've read any medieval sort of stories or maybe watched shows about medieval people and the time of dragons and all of those things, you might be familiar with the term of bannermen. A bannerman was somebody who uh, allied themselves with a king, somebody who said that they were a part of the king's people. And the king, when he needed to defend his land or needed to attack some other land, would call in his banners. He would raise his banner up and say, everyone who is loyal to me, come in and we are going to go fight. When the Bible says that Jesus is a signal for the peoples, it's saying that he is calling in his banners. All of his people are coming together. Beloved, that's us. That's the calling to us. He is calling us to be agents of love and hope in the age of the Messiah. I don't know if this is because um, I'm really like have mnemonic devices that help me remember things or if it's because I had a terrible history teacher early on. But when I was younger, I knew that BC stood for before Christ. And I thought that AD meant after death. Now, that leaves 30 some odd years unaccounted for. I didn't know how calendars worked. But the problem with that is that AD does not mean after death. The AD in our dating system means Anno Domine. It's Latin. It means the year of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the year of the Lord. This is the time of the Messiah. The shoot of Jesse is at work. He has called in his banners and sent us out to be agents of hope and love. Will you see that light piercing through this Advent? Will you heed that call? Maybe, maybe you need hope before you're able to share it with others Look to Jesus. Look at who he is. Trust in his character. Maybe you need boldness. This is the year of the Lord. He is already at work wherever you find yourselves. May you see the beauty and character of Jesus. May you see his faithfulness and righteousness, his very character culminating in the cross. And as we dwell on those things, may it be a light shining in the darkness. May it be LED lights waking us up in the middle of the night as we are roused from sleep. May hope infect our bones. Let's pray.